Good, so we have this morning our second session on what the Bible has to tell us about sex and marriage. So I made the point that although this is of course on sexual morality, actually the most basic message of the Bible on sex is that sex and marriage go together. So that's why we can't really look at sex in the Bible without looking at marriage, at least indirectly. So we had, I gave you 14 pages of notes in our last lecture. We did the first seven of those last week. Um, so we started with Genesis, and that will also be where we will return, which I think is an important image to have in our mind in terms of what the Bible says. The Genesis account at the beginning is on, tells us about marriage and sex, but St. Paul and the Lord Jesus at the end of Salvation History's revelation about sex and marriage will again return to the image of Adam and Eve there in the beginning. So we looked at them, we looked about how the basic message of fertility and unity, um, the prophetic development about the covenant model of marriage. We looked at a bit um, the wisdom literature. So look at the model of Tobias and Sarah and the Song of Songs. And then we ran through some kind of bullet point specific sexual prohibitions in the Old Testament because the negative teaches us something about the positive. Um, okay, so we are now therefore starting on page seven of those notes. Um, and I'd highlighted to you that um, you know, we have the fact that there are these problematic, the problem that there are some things that are permitted in the Old Testament but forbidden in the New. Um, and how do we make sense of that? So that's basically we've got a few pages here kind of working our way through. Um, and I think you said you've looked at this dogmatically in Salvation Histories, of course. That, that's a college-level course, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you done it at a theology level? Yes? No? We looked at marriage um, in sacraments class. Right. But in terms of the developmental question that I'm flagging up today. There were some basic principles and foundations of morality, or whatever that class was called. But not as a dogmatic question. So. Right. We've got two years left, so maybe you'll cover it there. But I'm going to touch on it at least here. Okay, so going through my notes then. Two problematic issues with respect to the Old Testament versus the New. So the question, how can a practice be permitted under the Old Testament, but then be forbidden suddenly in the New? See, there are three substantial issues relating to sex and marriage that present themselves. Polygamy, concubinage, whereby you have a child by a concubine, someone you're not even married to, and remarriage after divorce. And in each case, the practice is tolerated under the Old, not endorsed or explicitly permitted, but it is at least tolerated. And the practice then is forbidden explicitly in the new. With the general point is that God reveals himself and his truth gradually, and his fullness only in the fullness of time. So, subsection A, the general point, revelation is gradual. Just thinking generally, when we learn and when we teach, 
we learn in stages. That you can't learn a complex truth until you've learned simple ones first. And if you think of when you did math, you can't do calculus until you know algebra. And if some of you have already forgotten your calculus and algebra, I hope that analogy holds. But um, you know, there's all kinds of bits of knowledge that are progressive. You can't teach a two-year-old what you can teach a 20-year-old. Not just because of the age difference, but of the progression of learning. And so when God was teaching in his revelation, it's the same thing. You cannot impart knowledge to someone who is not prepared to receive it. If you impart knowledge to someone unprepared, then they receive it differently from how you imparted it. Um, and here I quote St. Thomas, who is, gives the classic dictum on this, whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. So in a sense, even if God spoke his complete revelation at the beginning, the capacity of how it would have been received, it kind of wouldn't have looked the way we find it at the end of the Bible. Because the receiver is only able to receive it according to what he's ready for. So a good teacher, and obviously God is the best of teachers, teaches developmentally without ever lying in earlier simplifications, but still somehow having a development. God is the best of teachers, and scripture traces how he taught gradually. Again, I say never lying. So one example, the resurrection of the body. So an afterlife isn't explicit in the early Old Testament. You and Abraham is called, there isn't a promise of heaven, there isn't a lack of a promise of heaven, so to speak, but, but it's just there's a whole silence on those questions in the early part of the Old Testament. And yet somehow by the time of the Maccabees, at the end of the Old Testament, it's become a very clear and definite doctrine. And when the Maccabees are being tortured to death, this is what they're talking about. We will rise again in new bodies. Polygamy and, and having concubines. So, these were practiced by early Jewish figures, but by the time the line of development of Old Testament revelation had come to exclude polygamy and concubines, before the completion of the Old Testament, i.e. even before the fullness of revelation in Christ. So somehow, even before the Lord Jesus comes along, concubines and polygamy are somehow an unthinkable thing. So that God has effectively taught his people and made these things of the past. So how does that, theologically, how does it make sense for God to be kind of silent on a big thing like polygamy at one stage and then it to become for his chosen people something they know is wrong. Well, I offer um, three bullet points or three sections uh, in the Roman numerals there of different explanations of that. The first would be my preferred explanation and this would be if you read the works of Scott Hahn or Jeff Cavins this would be basically their approach. And they would point out that the Old Testament actually never permitted these practices. We find them recorded as happening, but that doesn't mean they were permitted to do it. God didn't say, go have a concubine. 
because Abraham did it. So scripture scholars like Scott Hahn and Jeff Cavins follow what they call a narrative interpretation of scripture. I, we only understand the whole Bible by reading it as a whole, seeing the place and significance of individual events within the timeline. So when we read the Bible, we've got to realize where somebody is in the midst of that timeline, what they understand about what God is doing in his process of revelation. And then when scripture teaches, it usually teaches by narrative rather than by explicit statement. For example, somebody does something evil and bad consequences follow. So how, when you read the Bible, does the Bible teach you? And how did it originally teach its hearers? Well, frequently it's by recounting events where something bad happened because somebody did something bad. And that was how you taught that it was bad. So, so that the narrative is how the Old Testament teaches. So, in this analysis, when the Bible narrates cases of polygamy and having concubines, it's either obviously linked to greed and lust, or is shown to be wrong by its con consequences. So, a couple of examples there. So, Abraham, he had one wife, Sarah, who was the mother of Isaac, and one concubine, Hagar, the mother of Ishmael. Now, the Bible doesn't go into huge detail about this because the people it's writing for knew this, but Flowing out of that, there is this perpetual enmity between the Jews and the Arabs, which traces its origin to these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So there, there was a bad consequence that flowed out of that, that, that rivalry, that enmity. The enmity between Sarah and Hagar and their sons and all their descendants. So that it isn't portrayed to us as a good thing to do by the narrative. Jacob, um, he had two wives and two concubines, outdoing Abraham. Um, the rivalry between the 12 sons, well, how did that end? Well, they sold one of them, Joseph, as a slave. The rivalry was so extreme. So again, this is an indication that when you have different wives, different concubines, that doesn't make for a happy family. Gideon had many wives. We're not told how many, just he had a lot of them. And he had 70, 71 sons. And one of his sons, Abilamech, killed his 70 brothers. Well, that's a pretty obvious bad consequence. Um, King David, again, we don't know how many wives. It says, it refers to at least seven. King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The mind boggles, really, doesn't it? Um, but when the Bible narrates all that, it narrates it referring to how David was corrupted by his lust, and Solomon likewise. So there's a narrative there in which these aren't presented as great things. So that would be the first explanation of how we make sense of that. Um, that actually, even when the Old Testament is talking about these, it isn't endorsing them. It's just recording these things did happen. Now, in a sense, the more technical and classic interpretation of this 
is what's in my um, second section here on top of page eight. Uh, and this is the, the line articulated by St. Thomas and by St. Augustine. And this says, in the old law, God gave dispensation. Well, actually, before we do this, does, does what I've described as the narrative approach, do you understand what I'm saying there? So the Bible doesn't explicitly say concubines are wrong, but every time there are concubines, it's shown to have disastrous consequences. And that is how it teaches. That's the structure of narrative teaching in the Old Testament that God didn't write manuals of moral theology in the Old Testament. Okay, so, top of page eight. So th this explanation says, as I say, in the old law, God gave a dispensation to individuals from certain laws. Um, and this is the explanation of St. Thomas following St. Augustine. And I say, I consider this to be an inadequate analysis but I will humbly add the clarification. It is offered by the two greatest theologians in the entire history of the church. Um, so um, I should challenge it with some hesitation. So according to St. Thomas, the natural law forbids polygamy, but not as an exceptionless law. That God himself granted dispensations to the patriarchs. And I note... These dispensations aren't actually recorded in scripture. So, um, Jacob, could you read the quote there from the same? Sure. Uh, yeah. A dispensation in this matter could be granted by God alone through an inward inspiration, vouchsafed originally to the holy patriarchs, and by their example continued to others, at a time when it behooved the aforesaid precept not to be observed, in order to ensure the multiplication of the offspring to be brought up in the worship of God. So, in this model, um, God grants a dispensation. God permits what, it, generally speaking, he forbids. Um, because God is God and he can permit it. Um, and because at that time, it behooved that it was permitted because God needed at the very beginnings to extend the people of God uh, by propagation rapidly. Now to say that in more detail, so the natural law, this is according to St. Thomas, forbids a plurality of wives, but it forbids it in this manner. In its first precepts, which thus bind all persons of all time, Children are to be raised in marriage. So the begetting and rearing of children is the principal end of marriage. But St. Thomas notes, one husband can fulfill that particular end through multiple wives. Thus having multiple wives neither destroys nor hinders that particular end of multiplying offspring. Next bullet point. In its secondary precepts, which thus bind most but not universally all people, a husband and wife owe each other fidelity, which forbids multiple spouses. 
Having multiple wives, though it does not wholly destroy the second end, i.e. the union of the spouses, it hinders it considerably. For there cannot easily be peace in a family where several wives are joined to one husband. It is therefore evident from what has been said that plurality of wives is in a way against the law of nature, and in another way not against it. So because at that level, he's saying the secondary precepts, there is kind of a wiggle room, that God himself can give a dispensation. Thus God could give the patriarchs a dispensation for multiple wives. Um, Daniel, could you read the quotation there? It is stated, Galatians 3.19, that the law was set because of transgressors, mainly in order to prohibit them. Now the old law mentions plurality of wives without any prohibition thereof, as appears from Deuteronomy 21.15. If a man has two wives, etc. Therefore they were not transgressors through having two wives, and so it was lawful. Right. So, St. Thomas is there saying there is a reference in Deuteronomy where the having two wives is referred to without comment. And therefore, he says, it was lawful. But lawful because God give, gave a dispensation in their case. Yeah. I guess, I mean, looking at this, why specifically do you think it's an inadequate explanation? I don't like the thought that God can say, you can go and break the law. It just doesn't seem... For something to be so important in the New Testament, to be capable of being dispensed in the old, I just find it, it, it doesn't sit easily with me as, as convincing. I think in practice, I'd probably end up blending a bit of these together, a narrative approach in which something is tolerated by not being commented on, much in the Old Testament, but there is a teaching, implicit at least, that gradually becomes explicit as time goes on. Any other comments? Questions? This approach almost makes it seem like the natural law is not natural, like it's just imposed in sort of arbitrary in a way. Um, and so St. Thomas kind of bends over backwards to say that isn't what he's saying. Right. And he says the natural and the secondary forbids most of the time, but not all the time. He's saying that is the natural law. But that is that the feeling we're left with is that the natural law isn't what we generally mean by the term, something immutable and holding for all people. Something rooted in our nature. Okay, in a sense, the detail of this would be in a foundational theology course or a dogma course, but practically speaking, it has significance for us, and that's why I'm trying to cover it at least briefly. Okay, the third explanation, more briefly at the bottom of the page there, I say this thing about where are the references to polygamy and having multiple wives and, and concubines, 
Well, there are restrictions, but not permissions, at least with respect to polygamy. So it says in the Old Testament, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. Now, that isn't the same thing as saying, I permit you to marry another woman. It's just saying, I know you do this, but if you're going to do this, well, at least make sure the first wife is taken care of. So there's a restriction there, which isn't the same thing as giving a permission. So the two commandments regarding polygamy are both phrased in the conditional, i.e. presuming polygamy is occurring and then seeking to restrict it, restrict it to defend the rights of the woman. I.e. the text is phrased in the conditional rather than as a command. And that, if you think about it in terms of teaching gradually, would kind of be how you'd have to teach these things. That's how we, we behave with children or in a seminary. If a rector has a vision of where he's aiming to, he will kind of direct things gradually. Um, okay, page nine. So what about divorce and remarriage? So this is section C, got a whole page on this question. So I note that divorce and remarriage, the law of Moses, I say, is less permissive of divorce than is generally presupposed. So you'll often have people bandy about, oh, well, it was allowed in the Old Testament. Well, actually, it's not quite that simple. Um, Joseph, can you read that quote from Deuteronomy to us? So top of page nine. Sorry, I, I looked at James and I said, Joseph, sorry. When a man takes a wife and marries her, he finds her favor in his eyes because she has found some indecent in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter husband dislikes her and writes her bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring guilt upon the land so that's the only place in the Old Testament where divorce is permitted. And it's permitted with a whole series of restrictions and condemnations about how problematic divorce is. So, you know, this vision that sometimes is presented that, well, the Old Testament is really happy about divorce and remarriage. Well, that isn't what the text actually indicates. So, I point that the text is phrased in the conditional rather than as a command, where the text presumes divorce is occurring, then restricts it. Now I note my third point there. The Lord Jesus' own interpretation makes the permission seem conditional. For your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command, but from the beginning of creation. So that, I think, is also how the Lord is phrasing it when in the New Testament he looks back and comments on this text. Not that God wanted that in the Old Testament, no. Because of the hardness of heart, because of a condition, 
he wrote that. Uh, we'll look at what the Lord Jesus directly says later, but um, St. Paul's words on this. He says, To the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, let her remain single, or else be reconciled to her husband. Uh, the husband should not divorce his wife. So note St. Paul attributes this command directly to the Lord, not I, but the Lord though it's not recorded in the four Gospels. But it does give what's called the, um, the Pauline privilege in canon law. You do canon law next year or this year on marriage? Oh, Last year. Next year. Next year. Okay, so you look at this with canon lawyers, but this is basically, basically in canon law, a sacramental marriage can never be dissolved, but a non-sacramental marriage can be. And this is because St. Paul makes a difference between how he refers to marriages between two believers and marriages between an unbeliever and a believer that isn't sacramental. So the Pauline privilege in canon law, um, a non-Christian marriage, i.e. a Christian married to an unbeliever, is dissoluble. The Christian may not simply dismiss the non-believer spouse, but if the non-believer wishes to depart, he or she may depart. The initiative remains with the non-believing spouse. In such a case, says St. Paul, the believing brother or sister is not bound, implying free to marry again. St. Paul reminds the Christian spouses that God called them to live in peace. Okay, point five there on my list with respect to St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I said the previous described three explanations for polygamy would also hold for divorce and remarriage. So St. Thomas's analysis, although to put away one's wife is wrong in itself, divorce and remarriage nevertheless became lawful by God permitting it in the old dispensation. And it will consider divorce and remarriage more later in the course. That'll be after the October break. Any questions before we move on? Oh, well, obviously divorce and remarriage is a big area. We'll have uh, a few lectures on that later in the course. Okay, so page 10. Um, what the Lord Jesus said about um, sexuality. So start at the top of the page saying, the Lord built on, rather than repudiated, the Jewish teaching he came to fulfill. So, for example, he listed sexual sins among the vices that flow out of man's heart and defile him. Um, Emmanuel, could you read that quote from Mark for us? For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, licentious, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
So at my basic point, in that list of the bad things that flourish the heart, sexual things are there. So this is just the Lord Jesus in continuity with the old. Um, then I say he tightened up with respect to adultery, making it a matter of the heart and eyes, not just of the body. Um, Joseph, could you read that quotation from Matthew for us? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with, him, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than, than that your whole body be thrown to Gehenna, into hell. So you're so familiar with the text, you're <laughs> quoting it spontaneously rather than reading it, yeah. That's good. Um, okay, and then my last bullet point in this section, that he, again, continuity, he developed the old teaching which forbade, uh, up to prohibit divorce and remarriage. So if you remember last time we noted that in the prophetic writings, spoke about how God hates divorce, but actually the Lord Jesus, when he comes, then explicitly forbids it. So Brian, could you read that quotation? So this is all from Mark's Gospel. All three of them? Yes, because it, it all flows, it's the same thing. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, For your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So that is all from Mark, but I note the parallel text there in Matthew and Luke. And I just note the point that the Lord takes us back in the beginning to Adam and Eve. And next got a little section on the dignity of women. So um, William May, many commentators point this out. What does the Lord Jesus add uh, in terms of what he teaches? Um, well, he teaches about the dignity of women. So say, in a culture where women were not the equals of men, the Lord affirmed female dignity and equality in a number of ways. So first, he spoke of adultery as an offense against the woman, whereas the Jewish law spoke of it in terms of being an offense against the husband. So his various adultery texts and divorce and remarriage texts equally refer to the husband and wife. So that's a, a development. Um, he had friendship with Martha and Mary, and with the woman who accompanied him. Um, again, for his time, that would have been quite an unusual thing. 
He spoke openly to the Samaritan woman at the well and gave her the dignity of being an apostle in terms of telling others about him. And he chose to make women his first witnesses of his resurrection. So these are significant things in which he is giving a dignity to women and therefore implicitly in terms of sexuality teaching something as well. And as a side, if he then chooses to not have women among his 12 apostles, even though he did do all these other things, that does seem to therefore be a conscious choice on his part, um, which we base the fact we only have men here in the seminary. Okay, page 11, celibacy and virginity. Um, I, I note that probably no teaching is more countercultural than celibacy. Yes, I'm sure certainly the Americans here will have had the experience when you have told someone you're going to seminary, there's nothing about that process that more makes them think um, than the fact you're saying, yes, I can be celibate, yes, I'm agreeing to do that. Nothing more countercultural, certainly for our context. Um, now, as noted above, in, so we looked at this briefly when we looked at the Old Testament teaching in the last lecture. In Judaism, a life of celibacy was abnormal, possibly even sinful. So this is a big change that's brought in the New Testament. So nonetheless, the Lord Jesus was single, and St. Paul was single. Since almost the two most vocal voices in the New Testament, both single. So saying Peter is the first pope, but he doesn't write anywhere near as much as, as Paul does. So I say here, the gospel teaching on this uh, celibacy uh, comes immediately after the Lord's teaching forbidding divorce and remarriage. So the disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man and his wife, divorce and remarriage, it's not expedient to marry. Um, but he said to them, not all men can receive this precept, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to receive this, let him receive it. He also commended those who have set aside wives in order to follow him. Truly I say to you, there is no man who has left what house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of heaven who will not receive manifold more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. St. Paul likewise commended celibacy. He said, and here I'm... Um, making excerpts from a, a long text to make it briefer. It is well for a man not to touch a woman. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is well for them to remain single, as I do. I wish that all were as myself. I wish you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please the Lord. 
But the married man is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman or girl is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly affairs, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The undivided heart, that's the, the origin of that phrase. And then I have a, a section here just summarising from the tradition how celibacy is a higher state than marriage. So that doesn't mean, stating hopefully the obvious, that every celibate is a better person than a married person. But objectively speaking, the state in itself is what's called a higher state of life. So what's the basis for this? Well, the phrase, he who is able to receive this, let him receive it. Then from St. Peter, uh, St. Paul, he who marries his betrothed does well, he who refrains from marriage will do better. So the church teaches, quoting Vatican II, the surpassing excellence of virginity consecrated to Christ. Then I quote Pius XII uh, in his letter on sacred virginity. This doctrine of the excellence of virginity and of celibacy and of their superiority over the married state was, as we have already said, revealed by our divine redeemer and by the apostle of the Gentiles. So the two texts I've quoted above there. So too it was solemnly defined as a dogma of divine faith by the Holy Council of Trent. So you know, when you're in a church document ranking up the degrees of authority there, he's grounding this very solidly. Virgin, uh, now, I've got a phrase here from John Paul II, and this is his kind of theological analysis of it. He says, virginal love goes directly to the person of Christ through immediate union with him, without intermediaries, the intermediary of a spouse. A true and complete decisive spiritual espousal, whereas the married cleave to God through the intermediary of a spouse. So cleaving to God through your spouse is cleaving to him, but it's through the spouse, whereas the celibate cleaves directly. And that's why, as a state in itself, it's more direct, it's higher, but that doesn't mean the person in it and living it is taking advantage of that or is himself, therefore, uh, better or worse. Next bullet point, cleaving to the Lord with an undivided heart in vowed chastity um, is a more effective means than sacramental marriage for growth in charity. And my last bullet point, that John Paul II notes that the properly ordered love involved in living virginity can be seen as a form of therapy for the disorders love, disordered loves of our age. Such therapy links easily with the notion of virginity being a unique way of making present the future eschatological age where all such disordered love of goods will be remedied.
so I've not quoted there, but this notion that celibacy is an eschatological sign, that in heaven we will all be celibate. You know, the Lord Jesus says that they do not marry in heaven. Um, so that by being celibate, we're pointing to what everyone will be in heaven. Yeah. I wonder why it took the church so long to embrace this uh, type of celibacy. Embrace it in which sense? Uh, making it for the priests. Um, I don't know how much reading you've done on this about um, the difference between apostolic continent, clerical continence, and celibacy. Is that in any of your courses? So, we know the apostles, or at least St. Peter, had a wife. Um, because his mother-in-law is referred to. We don't know he had a wife as he followed the Lord. And we can read in the centuries that followed, it was clearly the practice of the early church that when a man went to become a priest, he would put aside his wife. He would cease to have conjugal relations with her. And then increasingly, uh, they would live separately. So that the, we find this in the church laws and that um, the laws of the church are making sure that when the man puts aside his wife, he adequately cares for her. So he doesn't just abandon her and say, oh, I'm going to become a priest now. Um, he makes sure she's cared for financially, that his children are cared for. Um, so the earliest record we have isn't of married priests living marriage, but the earliest record we have is of men who were married no longer relating to their wives as they did before and then increasingly what would be the logical outcome of that only ordaining men who are celibate to begin with and linked with that is the question of whether you are ordaining older men who are then pretty much likely to have settled down and have a wife and family or if like you you grab a man at 18 um, before he's settled down with a wife and then you kind of set him on that whole direction to begin with. So that gets clarified in church law at the Lateran Council about only ordaining celibates. But the earlier practice we find of only ordaining men who are agreeing to live in continence, i.e. not have sexual relations with their wife, is an older practice before that. So we know the Greek Orthodox or the other Orthodox churches, they're not all of them, uh, have married priests. But what's often not spoken about is how that isn't um, quite the equality of marriage and ordination that's being called for by the advocates here. So for example, bishops, even in the Orthodox, none of their bishops are married. Um, and at least parts of the Orthodox communion would have the, and again, we can read this in some of the older patristic texts, the priest would do a kind of weird thing where a bit like the Old Testament where they would be um, continent, 
not have relations with their wife in the days before saying Mass. So they don't have daily Mass, but when they do have Mass, they will have been continent for, I think it's three days before that. So these are, I would say, residues in the Orthodox practice of the older practice of universal clerical continence, which, like many church laws, as the centuries went on, got more and more refined, and to take a man when he is young and still single and committed to continence in what will then be celibacy um, is kind of the natural evolution of that law. The, the other indication of a more ancient practice being what I've described is that even for the Orthodox, they will ordain a married man, but a priest who is ordained before marriage is not then allowed to marry. Because as the patristics will often quote the phrase from the epistles, the elder must be a man of one wife. And once you're married to the church, you've got your wife. Sometimes she looks more beautiful than other days, um, but that's your wife. But in a sense, the bigger picture here, where this puts sex in the Bible, it just changes the perspective. This thing about virginity no longer being a curse in the Old Testament, but actually being a positive thing in the New Testament. This puts all of sexuality in a different vision. And so it makes sexuality and fertility um, a spiritual fertility being in a sense the, the goal, not just a physical fertility. So that you as future priests are called to be fathers spiritually, um, fathers of many more children than if you'd got a wife. Okay, page 12 of the notes here. Um, so here I'm doing a brief summary of St. Paul on sexuality in basically the next three pages. Um, so say to appreciate him, we need to notice context. In his writings to those in the Gentile culture, there were two things he combated. One, Stoicism with its rejection of desires and of pleasure and its focus on self-control. So you all know the Stoic Greek philosophers. Um, so in, in a sense, they were great philosophers, but their vision of the body and of the passions and of sex was all about self-control. It wasn't the integration of virtue that we'll look at with St. Thomas later in the course. So that's one of the things St. Thomas is battling. Uh, St. Paul is battling. The other is Gnosticism, with its dualism between the body and the soul. So in Gnosticism, in summary, the body was evil, the soul was good. And Gnosticism did a weird thing. It, it, it could go two ways. Either you end up with a rigorous asceticism, like the Stoics. So my body is evil and I shun the pleasures of the body. Or you get sexual license, that since the deeds of the body are of little importance, I can do what I like. And 
oddly you get in a kind of neo-Gnosticism of the current age some echoes of both of these. More of the sexual license. Um, so what does St. Paul say, argue, in contrast with that? Well, my first section there, I say St. Paul talked about the dignity of the body and of the flesh. So he preached about the resurrection of the body. So if you recall, the Greeks at Athens laughed at him when he preached about the resurrection of the body. They viewed the body with such disdain. You know, who would want a resurrected body back? Um, but he preached the resurrection of the body. And it's a big theme in his writings. He taught the biblical anthropology of the person as a unity of body and soul, not dualism. He used the image of the head and body to describe Christ and the church. And contrary to Stoic self-control, he talked about the Christian yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's quite a different vision to Stoicism. Stoicism is all about me. I'm in control. I'm going to... Where St. Paul again and again is talking about the power of the Spirit in terms of how we combat the flesh and its more base desires. Okay, then St. Paul also, more specifically, talked about a correct use of sexuality in the body. So he says, the body's not meant for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So I noted twofold argument for correct deeds of the body. First, he's pointing out the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, that's a big deal. If your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, what you do with your body matters. Secondly, the body is united to Christ. And thus is inappropriate for various simple behaviours. He also says the repentant Christian who's been washed of the impurity of the old life. So he refers the old life, fornicators, adulterers, sodomites, drunkards, revilers, all kinds of things, the old way of life, the old use of the body, all that's put behind. You're washed of that if you are That list, Corinthians, the text I was reading from, but also similarly in Thessalonians. And also Galatians 5, I say he contrasts living according to the flesh and sinning according to the flesh. Contrast that with living according to the Spirit and receiving the fruits of the Spirit. This is, you know, kind of how, how.
how St. Paul said. It's not just listing a list of commandments, but there's a context here how it's presented. Any thoughts before we move on? Okay, so page 13. Just try to summarise here two sections, two specific things um, that we could point to as in, in St. Paul. Um, so he does refer um, to marriage and marital sex as a concession to desire. So he uses this phrase, a concession. So reading my notes here. While St. Paul commended celibacy, he added, however, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Because of the temptation to immorality, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Do not refuse one another, lest Satan tempt you through lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not of command. So say there's a realism in this advice, even though it might sound unglamorous as a motivation for marriage. So the later Christian tradition will refer to what we call a remedy for concupiscence as one of the, the ends of marriage, um, secondary ends of marriage. And that kind of ties us back to this scriptural root in St. Paul. But I know even in this context, St. Paul refers to marriage as a gift. I wish all were as I myself am, but each has his own special gift from the Lord, one of one kind, one of another. And note also that he says of marriage that it does well. He who marries his betrothed does well, even if he who refrains from marriage will do better. So kind of in summary, this thing of a concession that he's not saying marriage is evil, he's just saying celibacy is even better. Um, so those who, celibacy just would be too much, better to marry as a concession to desire, um, but that marriage is a gift. So when the Second Vatican Council and other places refer to marriage as a true vocation, that it is a gift some are called to. But so kind of why I'm articulating this in the tradition that means that this phrase, a remedy for concupiscence, as one of the ends of marriage, has its origin in here. Any comments? Because I, mean, I think St. Paul's indicating celibacy would be a better gift. You know, you, God loves all of us, but he gives different gifts. Um, and that your state of life is only one of the gifts he gives you. So if you can get a, a, sense, a better gift in one respect, you'll have other gifts, or someone else will have other gifts 
as well. What does concession mean in this sense? So rephrase that with a different word. Um, I don't think it's as extreme as the Old Testament hardness of heart, but it's something that's being permitted rather than encouraged. I think the risk would be, but it's not quite as strong as, as that. So it's not a bad thing. So the rector said he wanted everyone to do an hour every morning in the chapel before Mass. But he said, those of you that aren't up to that yet, by way of concession, do half an hour. That would be a concession, yeah? That he's encouraging you to do something more, but if it's too tough, by way of concession. Okay, so in a sense, that is one of the things in St. Paul's writings. I think it's true, I think it's important, but it is a kind of phraseology that isn't very glamorous as a, when it's speaking about sex and marriage, but it is in the tradition, so we need to know where it's coming from. Possibly an even less glamorous phrase within the tradition is the marital debt. Um, so, you know, a debt is something you owe to somebody, a debt is something you have to pay to somebody. Well, in this... Husbands and wives owe each other the debt of sex. Um, so far from making love, this is 